Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And we'll read from verse 2 to verse 6. Verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness." Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this holy time to be together as saints. Thank you for the truth that unites us, the fellowship that we have in the knowledge of you. Thank you that we can come together and sing your praises and pray to you, Lord, with perfect confidence and access and boldness through the blood of Christ, not our own worthiness, Lord, not because we lived and performed rightly this last week, but only because of your son's shed blood that has made us righteous before you. Thank you that we can come before you, Lord, with joy and thanksgiving. And thank you that we can hear from the scriptures. And I pray that at this time, as we now look at this passage, I pray that you would help us to think, Lord, there's always so many obstacles in our minds from distractions to wrong ways of thinking that are entrenched, ways that we have thought for a very long time, lies in our head that need to get replaced by your truth. Lord, help us this morning to detect those lies, to reflect upon what we, be what we believe, and to hear truly what is being said here in this passage. Lord, we don't want the words of man, but the, we want your word, Lord. We want what you say and what you think. Lord, thank you for the great privilege of having the scriptures, and we want to attend to them now and hear with ears, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would be changed and transformed by the renewing of our minds. And Lord, that ultimately all of this would cause us to glorify you and give you the honor and worship that is due you Lord, we thank you. We commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's sermon is entitled, Receiving the Spirit by the Spirit, Part 2. And you'll remember last week, we looked at this very same passage, and we, we talked about receiving the Spirit by the Spirit as well. And so this is a continuation from last week. A continuation of looking at a sadly controversial subject, and that is the subject of the Holy Spirit, which is a sadly controversial subject in the Christian church. If, if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that Christians have lots of disagreements about the subject of the Holy Spirit. And this is the subject of the, of the passage that we just read. So by way of summary and reorienting ourselves before we just dive into this passage, 
We need to remember that the book of Galatians was written by Paul. It was probably his first letter that we possess, the, the first one that we possess of Paul, the earliest one. And it was written to churches in the province of Galatia that were being influenced and affected by false teachers who were uh, Jewish people, Jewish men, who professed to believe in Jesus. They professed to be Christians like all the other Christians. But they would come along to the different Christian congregations and say, hey, we believe in Jesus as well. We believe he is the Messiah the Old Testament is prophesied of. We believe that salvation comes through him. We believe he died on the cross for our sins. We believe he rose from the dead. But this Paul guy, this sub-apostle, who is saying that it's simply through faith alone that we are justified and become the children of Abraham and the children of God. Paul is wrong. Uh, he's probably got good intentions, but he's wrong. And really, you have to keep the law in order to be righteous and in order to be a child of Abraham, part of the family of Israel, and in order to be a child of God. Jesus didn't come to change the law, guys. Jesus didn't come to radically take away that necessity, that requirement. He came to help us. He came to give us new tools. He came to give us assistance. He came to give us new motivations and power to keep the law. But no, don't, do not think that you don't have to keep the law in order to be saved and in order to come in to the family of God. And so Paul writes his most intense letter in response to this problem. And in chapter 3, very introductory stuff is over, and Paul is now addressing the, direct, the Galatians directly. And he's saying, as you can see in verse 1 and verse 3, he's saying, you guys are foolish for being influenced by, by these false teachers. You're out of your mind. You're crazy. You're bewitched. If you go down that road, you've lost your mind. You're, you've lost control of your senses. You got to think here. Think about it for a minute. So we're here at the heart of the letter where Paul is addressing them directly. And you can see that he gives them a series of rapid-fire questions here in verse uh, 1 through 5. A series of rapid-fire questions that are all about their experience. So before he dives into scripture and exegesis and doctrine, he first appeals to their experience, basically saying, look, if you just thought about your own experience for a moment, your own conversion experience, that would be sufficient proof for you to see the folly of what you're doing. Just think about your own experience. All the questions here in this rapid-fire series of questions are really just a subset of the one question in verse 2. Because he says here, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. And he asks this question. Everything else kind of just is a subset of verse 2. And in fact, verse 5, I believe, is simply a restatement of verse 2. So if you want to know what verse 5 means, it's just the same as verse 2 from a little bit of a different perspective. Verse 2 is talking about when they first received the Spirit. Verse 5 is talking about God who continuously provides the Spirit to them through faith and, and works power among them through faith. But it's really just the same uh, question and it's a restatement. Last week we looked at verse 2 and we talked, and what I said there in verse, about verse 2 last week was that the Spirit that was received by the Galatians that Paul is uh, highlighting in verse 2, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith, that was the spirit that they received at conversion. 
And if you follow Paul's train of thought here in the letter of Galatians, he's talking about the spirit of sonship that they received when they became Christians. Just trace Paul's thought from verse 2 onward, and you're going to see there's there's a connection, like kind of connect the dots. You can see his train of thought every time he mentions the Spirit. And it leads you to chapter 4, if you just want to look there, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And you can see what he means when he talks about receiving the Spirit. He says, so that he talks about Christ in the fullness of time. I guess we can look at verse 4 here. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. So Paul's saying, look, the law is a problem, guys. It's not the way of salvation. This is why we are having trouble with our salvation. This is why we're not saved and why we need salvation from Christ. He came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So if you trace this theme of receiving of the Spirit, what Paul is talking about is that conversion when we believed, when we were justified, when we were redeemed from the law, we became God's sons and daughters, and we received the Spirit of adoption. And Paul talks about this in more detail in Romans chapter 8, if you'd like to turn there just for a moment. Just a couple books back here, a few books back. Romans chapter 8. And verse 15. And notice his language here about receiving the Spirit. Romans 8.15. And he says here, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Every Christian, that's, that's true of every Christian, right? That's not some Christians, right? Every Christian cries out, Abba, Father. And as we talked about last week, that's not some superficial thing, you know, that, oh yeah, we call God our Father. And so do these other religions call God our Father. We just like the ring of it. There's some depth of understanding there that when you become a Christian, you come to know who God is. You come to understand his fatherhood. You come to understand that Jesus Christ, his son, was sent into the world to save us by grace. You come to understand that God is a righteous God who provides for us the righteousness that we need to be accepted before him. So when we cry, Abba, Father, we're crying with great, that with great understanding and with great knowledge, with the true knowledge of who God is as the Father. Jesus talked about lots of religious people think they know the Father, but they don't really know the Father because no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son reveals Him. So if you become a Christian, you know the Father and that's something deep and special indeed. And with that true knowledge of God as Father, with that understanding, we are freed from fear. Amen? It's, why are we freed from fear as Christians? Is it because we've, we feel like we're good enough and we've kept the commandments? Is that why we're not afraid anymore about judgment and punishment? Why are, we, why, are we not, why are we not afraid anymore? For no other reason than that now we know who God is, right? Because now we know, not that, not, it's not that we thought God was a just God and now we know he's not, right? It's not that I thought God was going to punish sinners, but 
Now I know he won't. I'm not afraid anymore. <laughs> no, no, that hasn't changed. Now we know who God is. God is a just God who requires perfect righteousness. And if someone is not righteous, Jesus himself taught that they would perish eternally in fire, in hellfire. So it's not that God's justice has changed, but our knowledge of God's love has changed. Our knowledge of how deep his love for us has changed that now we realize, wow, he's a God of righteousness and justice who requires that and I truly deserve hell, yet God cares about me and sent his son to save me and provide righteousness for me that I don't deserve through the death of Christ. Wow. When you read the epistles, you can see all the apostles are amazed at this new true knowledge of God. And it's this knowledge that frees us from fear and gives us hope and gives us peace and gives us joy. These are real discernible signs of receiving the Spirit. So last week I said that the receiving of the Spirit isn't something that has no discernible signs and we just have to believe we have the Spirit because the Bible says so, right? Because I think sometimes we think that as Christians, I, the Bible says I've received the Spirit. I don't know that I've received it. I don't have any evidence that I've received it. I just have to believe that I have. But that's not right. There's real signs that come with receiving the Spirit of adoption. Namely, you cry out, Abba, Father, and you have the freedom from fear. That's a real discernible sign that you have received the Spirit. I'd like, just before we move on to examine uh, this section in Galatians, I'd like to make two more comments about the Spirit of Sonship. A few more comments on the Spirit of Sonship that we received at conversion. Since all Christians have received the Spirit of Sonship, what that means is we are all, Christ, all Christians who believe in Christ and know the Father are all brothers and sisters in God. Amen? We're all the family of God together. We are closer now with one another. We have a greater bond and a more a powerful bond that unites us together than any other bond that could unite people together, even more than our own family, physical family bonds. Amen? Amen. There's something that ties us together as families. And that is the spirit of sonship. We're all in the family together. Hendrikus Burkhoff, and he's a, a scholar, uh, a Dutch scholar, I believe, and he wrote um, a book called The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. In this book, he says, quote, It is impossible to have communion with the Holy Spirit in an individualistic way without communion with one another. It is equally impossible to call a community of to call a community a Christian fellowship as long as the conscious or unconscious bond is rooted in participation in the same national origin, social class, or race. You see what he's saying there? Don't call it a Christian fellowship if the bond that binds everyone together is just your race, social class, or national origin. It's only a Christian fellowship when the bond is the spirit of sonship that we've all received. And if you have received the spirit of sonship, that's not an individualistic thing. That connects you with all other Christians in the family of God. That's why we should really get rid of those ideas that, you know, I mean, technically you could be a Christian and go hide in the desert for the rest of your life. But really that's wrong. Because if you are a Christian, you are a part of a great family. And 
you and that family belong together to help each other, you know? So don't think, oh, I'll just be a Christian and go hide in the desert or hide at home my whole, I'll just spend the whole life at home, you know? You're in a family now. The other thing I'd like to say about the spirit of sonship, not only does it make us all family, but the spirit of sonship is also called, in the Bible, the first fruits of the spirit. In Romans chapter 8, actually, where it's talking about uh, the spirit of sonship in verse 15, look at verse 23 in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 23, talking about the spirit of sonship as the first fruits. And not only this, Paul says, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What he's talking about there is not that we aren't the sons of God. I mean, Paul makes it very clear that we've been adopted as sons. But what he's saying is we're eager for the manifestation of that adoption. We're eager when our bodies will actually be glorified, will actually uh, be resurrected. And we are now righteous, but we don't look righteous. We are now righteous, but we look indistinguishable from the rest of the world. One day the sons of God will be manifested and Paul saying, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit long for this. It's an amazing thing that receiving the Spirit of sonship is only the first fruits and not the full measure. I think that's an incredible thing. So the joy and the hope and the peace that we have through faith in Jesus Christ, how many of you know it's kind of distracted sometimes and it can be limited and we can lose our peace and we can lose our perspective and we do have it. But it's kind, of just, it's kind of limited, not in full measure. It's only a first fruits. It's only a small portion of what will be. Think about that for a moment. Think about the, the times in your life as a Christian when you have experienced true joy from your, from your knowledge of God and from your salvation. And imagine that that joy is simply a small portion of the great joy that we will receive when Christ comes. Isn't that an amazing thought? In another place, Paul calls this a down payment, meaning if you've got the spirit of sonship, not only is it a first fruits, but it's also a guarantee that you're going to receive the fullness in the future. It's God giving a down payment, promising himself, as we sang in that song, the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment that is going to come, the fullness. Isn't that good news? Do Christians long for the future? Yes. But not in a defeatist kind of way. And I'd like to share with you another thing Burkhoff says in his book, The Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. I quote, That we Christians hope is not primarily due to what we miss, but to what we have already received. In the light of what God has given, we discover how much the present situation of our world clashes with God's gifts in Christ and in the Spirit. That makes us look forward eagerly to a world which is recreated according to the gifts already bestowed upon us. So we're longing for the future not because of what we lack, per se, but because of what we have. Isn't that amazing? Because the first fruits is so wonderful, because we enjoy joy and peace and hope in the Spirit, and it's so wonderful we want more. And so it's not just, I don't have any joy and peace, bring the joy and peace, God. It's, this is so great, I'm excited for more. And 
in a very interesting way then, to not long for the future is in a sense not to enjoy what you have right now. Because when you enjoy what you have right now, the peace and the joy and the hope, it makes you say, I want more. I want it without distraction. I want it in its fullness. Receiving the spirit at conversion is receiving the spirit of sonship. And I said last week that The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is very difficult because there's so many dimensions to the Holy Spirit. And this receiving of the Spirit of Sonship is only one dimension of the Holy Spirit. I don't mean to exhaust what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit. And this morning we're going to talk about another dimension of the Holy Spirit. And there are many other dimensions of the Holy Spirit in the Bible as well. And I don't want to give the impression that what what we've talked about last week and what we talk about this week about the Spirit exhausts the subject. It doesn't. There's so many dimensions of God's activity. So turn with me back to Galatians chapter 3. So we've seen that the Spirit, according to this verse here, verse 2, Galatians 3, 2, is something to be received. That's one thing. And this morning we're going to talk about verse 3, and that is that the Spirit is that by which we receive the Spirit. Kind of interesting, isn't it? The spirit of sonship is what we receive. But verse 3 tells us that it's actually by the spirit that we receive the spirit of sonship. By the spirit, we receive the spirit of sonship. The spirit is not only the gift, but it's also the instrument of of giving the gift, the method by which we receive the gift. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now look at verse 3. You foolish, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, all commentators uh, recognize a connection between verse 2 and verse 3, and they see a parallel here, and I'd like us all to notice it. Now, look at the parallel in verse 2. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Notice the the instrumental clauses there. Did you receive the Spirit by, here's the instrument or the method, working the law or hearing with faith? Then in verse 3, you have two more instrumental clauses that are paralleled to works of the law and hearing with faith. Are you so foolish? I mean, verse 2 is rhetorical, right? You guys know that you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. You guys receive the Spirit through faith, not through works of the law. And then he says, aren't you so foolish in verse 3? You began by the instrument of the Spirit. You began by the Spirit. Why are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? And what are the Galatians doing? They're going back to the law. They're thinking, hey, wait, maybe salvation isn't by grace through faith. Maybe we have to keep the law in order to be saved. And Paul says, this is going to the flesh. This is trying to finish your race here by the flesh. When you started by the Spirit, and what what does it mean by the Spirit? By believing. So seeking justification or seeking to receive the Spirit by the works of the law is paralleled with by the flesh. And seeking justification or the reception of the Spirit by faith is paralleled with by the Spirit. Does everybody see that? There are many places in the Bible where flesh and Spirit are contrasted, right? This is just one of those places, but there's many places... And in many of those places, it's in this sense that they're contrasted, in an instrumental sense, in a methodological sense. 
by the Spirit or by faith? Think about John chapter 3, verse 6, when Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That's an instrumental statement. If the instrument of your birth is flesh, you're flesh. If the instrument of your birth is spirit, you're spirit. So spirit and flesh are contrasted in an instrumental way. How were you born? By the spirit or by the flesh? Or John 6, 63, Jesus says, The flesh profits nothing. The spirit gives life. The flesh isn't instrumentally able to give life. The spirit gives life. How do you have life? By the flesh or by the spirit? Contrasted instrumentally. Romans chapter 8, verse 4, verse 4 through 6. Also, Paul contrasts the flesh and the spirit in the instrumental way. He says that the righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us, but uh, in those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So is the righteousness of the law fulfilled in you when you walked according to the flesh or according to the spirit? Which was the method here? Was it by walking according to the flesh that, the, that you were righteous? Or was it by walking according to the spirit that you were righteous? Contrast in an instrumental way. Galatians chapter 4, look at verse 29. And you see here also, Paul, in the same letter, contrasts flesh and spirit in an instrumental way. 429. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now. So there's two different kinds of people in this world. Those who are born of the spirit and those who are born of the flesh. Instruments in contrast. Now I'd like to share personally my own experience that when I came to understand the meaning of flesh and spirit in this instrumental way, it really changed my life and it changed my, my Christian life. These words are so important in the Bible. In fact, you're going to find them all over the Bible. And even when it's not explicitly stated in the Bible, you're going to find the concept of flesh and spirit, by the flesh or by the spirit, all over the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. This is a major, major theme. And if we get it wrong, brothers and sisters, if we don't understand what flesh and spirit is here, and what this contrast is all about, then we've really missed something major in the Bible. And you really can't understand the Bible without understanding what this contrast is all about. When I first came to Logan in 2007, Brad asked me the question from the book of Galatians. Um, he asked me, Eli, what is the meaning of the flesh in the book of Galatians? What is the flesh in the book of Galatians? And what did I answer? What do most people answer? What is the flesh? What does the flesh mean in the book of Galatians? And I gave the answer that most people answer. I, I said, I can't remember my wording, but I think it's very hard to, the, the way that most people answer is kind of hard to phrase, but I said something like this. Flesh is your sinful desires, right? Flesh, flesh means your sinful desires or the sinful use of your bodily desires. So the body desires food and sex and friendship and other things. And the flesh is when you take those desires and you sinfully pervert them. I mean, it's hard to explain, 
but it's kind of like your, your sin nature that wants bad things. And so when you're gluttonous, that's the flesh. You're walking according to the flesh when you're gluttonous. You're walking according to the flesh when you're lusting. A fleshly person is a sinful person who's doing their own thing. That's what a fleshly person is. A sinful person is not obeying God and obeying the promptings of the Lord to do good. You hear the Lord say, do good, and you say, no, I want to do this, and that's fleshly. How many of you can relate to what I answered back when I talked with Brad? Okay, That's kind of what we feel when we hear the word flesh. If you look up diction, uh, Bible dictionaries and things, you're going to hear things like this, which comes out of a famous Bible, uh, dictionary, Bible dictionary. Uh, the flesh is the unregenerate and sinful state. The NIV translation frequently translates the word flesh. The Greek word is sarx, which is uh, well-translated flesh. Sarx in the Greek just means flesh. The NIV, which is kind of a paraphrase, frequently translates the word flesh or sarx sinful nature. In fact, if you're familiar with the NIV, you probably have read the word, the phrase sinful nature a lot. I want you to know that when you read that word, that phrase sinful nature, you're actually, um, the, the Greek word is actually one word, flesh. The NIV has recently been updated and they actually have changed many of the times it says sinful nature to the word flesh. They, they, they've gone back on that. And they said, we'll just keep it the word flesh here. We're not going to try to paraphrase it. But as I read the book of Galatians and thought about Brad's question, I realized that that definition of flesh as sinful nature or sinful desires, it didn't fit with the book of Galatians. And I realized that we've been missing a profound idea that's been, that brings major consequences when we misunderstand this. Flesh and spirit is a concept from the Old Testament. And I think this is why it gets missed so much because when we hear the word flesh, we aren't really getting our definition of the word flesh from the Old Testament. We're getting our definition of the word flesh really from an inherited culture of Christ Christianity that we've had for 2,000 years that basically says the sinful use of your body is the biggest problem in the Bible, right? Don't use your body badly. That's really the worst thing that you can do. And we kind of get our definition of the word flesh from our feelings and from our traditions and not from the Bible. But Paul is thinking Old Testament. And I'd like to just go through the Old Testament a little bit here. We're going to flip around. And I'd like to just highlight this theme and help us get a picture of what Paul means by the instrument of the flesh and the instrument of the spirit. So turn with me to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. Psalm 44, verse 3. Although, let's, let's just start in verse 1. Psalm 44, verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days in the days of old. So this psalm is all about what, who did, what God did. 
You with your own hand drove out the nations. Who did that? God. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them abroad. There's no doubt in the psalmist's mind that when Israel came into the land of Canaan, that was God's work. That was not man's work. Verse 3. For, and then he makes it explicit here. For by their own sword, they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. Now, you should know this, and I hope you do, that in the Bible, when it talks about the right hand or the arm, that's talking about power. And what he's saying is, God, your strength and your power and your work, you did this. This wasn't our sword and our arm and our strength and our muscle and our ability. This was your ability, right? And so he makes it very clear. Not our ability, but your ability. Look at verse 5. Through you we will push back our adversaries. Through your name we will trample down those who rise against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me, but you have saved us from our adversaries and you have put to shame those who hate us. So notice the con- there's a contrast here, isn't it? I'm not going to trust in what I can do, in my weapons, in my power, my ability, but in you, God, your strength. What do you think would happen if someone trusts in themselves? I can do it. I'm strong enough. Our armies will save us. We've got big enough horses. The Bible says that's going to come to nothing, right? It's only trusting in God. So this should be, I hope, a familiar kind of, I'm just giving a sampling, but this should be a familiar sampling to you, right? This is a pretty common theme in the Bible, isn't it? Who are you trusting in, God or yourself? Now look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. This really shouldn't be new, but I want to highlight that theme and that contrast. Trusting in God and what he can do and his strength and not what you can do and not your strength. Deuteronomy 8, verse 10. Eight ten. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes that I am commanding you today. Look at verse 14. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Look at verse 17. Otherwise, you may say in your heart what? What does God not want them to say in their heart? My power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. So God doesn't want you to forget. Don't think it's your strength and your arm that got you this. It was God. Exodus 15. Keep flipping back. Exodus 15. Verse 1 and 2. This is what we were singing today. Exodus 15, 1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. 
The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. Who gets the glory? God. Why? Because God is the one who did the saving. If, if they had saved themselves that day, they wouldn't have said, praise the Lord, he is my strength and my song, and I will praise him. They would have said, I don't know where God was, but we sure got ourselves out of that mess, right? <laughs> the one who does the work gets the glory. Look at verse 6. Once again, the emphasis here, whose right hand? Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Meaning, wow, not only did God's power save us, but we have a little bit of a knowledge now of how powerful God is. This incident has shown us the majesty of his power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. Now let's turn to Isaiah 31, and I'd like us to see here something very important. Isaiah 31. And what we find here is that this theme that we're seeing, and we all should be familiar with, this theme of trusting in God and not trusting in yourself, or trusting in God's power and his arm and not in your power and arm, this theme begins to be captured by certain words, okay? That certain catchwords start encapsulating that theme. And I bet you can guess what words they are. Isaiah 31, verse 1. I want you to notice the same theme here. It's no different. Different time setting, but same theme. Woe to those, verse 1, 31-1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. So basically, whenever Israel gets, well, in those days, when Israel got in trouble, instead of, I mean, where'd they look? Oh no, we don't have enough soldiers to beat off the Assyrians. We don't have enough soldiers to fight them, fight them back. Uh, Egypt has enough soldiers. We go to them. They're trusting in man and man's strength and what man can do. Horses, chariots, this is what we need. But God says he'll bring them to disaster in verse 2. But look at verse 3. Now the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall meaning the Egyptians and the Israelites who are helpers and helped, all of them will come to an end together. Notice how he captures what the Egyptian army is with the word flesh, right? And what they're not with the word spirit. He says, they're, they're not God. They're flesh. Flesh carries with it the idea of you're a created thing. You're weak. You're not, you don't possess the power that God has. You, it, it's, a, it's a statement of power. It's a statement of strength. And it's a disparaging statement. You're flesh. And so to trust in Egypt and their horses is to trust in flesh and not in God. It's to trust in something that's weak and unable and not in God who's powerful and able and not in his spirit. 
Jeremiah 17. We see this also in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, verse 5, 17, 5. This is such a wonderful passage in the Old Testament. We should all be familiar with it. 17, 5. Seventeen five, Jeremiah seventeen five. Thus says the Lord: Cursed is the man who trusts in man, or mankind, and makes flesh his strength. Interesting, huh? Wow, that's a pretty heavy statement. Cursed is the man who makes flesh his strength. Cursed is the man who makes flesh his strength. And look what God says you're doing when you make flesh your strength. In the next statement, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. When you trust in man or in horses or in, and not in God, when you trust in flesh, you are not trusting in God. You're actually turning away from God. And God says, cursed is the one who trusts in flesh. Verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. And obviously he goes on to say, there's going to result in a big difference, right? Blessing and cursing. Blessed is the man who trusts in God. Cursed is the man who trusts in flesh. Second Chronicles 32. Second Chronicles 32 before the Psalms, back there in the history section. Second Chronicles 32. Verse seven and eight. This is actually one of the most, this is a really important story in the Old Testament. One of those moments like the Red Sea parting where God miraculously delivers Israel in a way that no human being could have de delivered them. The situation was, was impossible, humanly speaking. The situation was a situation where there's nothing that a human being could do to get out of it. It was one of those situations where flesh could do nothing and profit nothing. There's no hope in human strength or in any strength apart from God. And if you're familiar with the story, this is when, this is King Hezekiah and Jerusalem are surrounded by the Assyrian army. And the Assyrian army has kicked everybody's butts up to this point, easily. And the Assyrian army is, is so big and so powerful and they surround Jerusalem. And remember when they're taunting Jerusalem and they're speaking over the wall and they're saying, don't trust in your God. All the other gods of the nations couldn't stop us your God is not going to be able to stop us either. Look at our army. Look at our weapons. Look at you, you puny people with nothing. There's nothing you can do, just surrender. And don't believe in Hezekiah when he tells you to put your trust in God, right? So it's a pretty climactic moment, and everything is against Israel. They can't beat him militarily. And look at uh, chapter 32 verse 7 and 8. And here's Hezekiah's words to Jerusalem. Be strong and courageous. That sounds like Joshua and Caleb, what they were told when they were to go into the land, facing a similar situation, right? Inhabitants that were 
too powerful for them. And why, oh, we'll get to that in a minute, but why were Joshua and Caleb supposed to be strong and courageous? Because they had good equipment and strength? No, because the Lord is with you, right? He can take these guys out. Trust in his strength. Be strong and courageous and do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is what? What has he got? An arm of flesh. That's all he got, right? He didn't say with him is all these chariots. He said with him is an arm of flesh. That's all he has. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and fight our battles. And look what the people do. The people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. That is faith. They heard and they believed and they trusted and they didn't fear. And guess what? God came through and killed 180,000 men that night. Super miraculous. God came through and did something that no human could do or no arm of flesh can do. You see this theme in the Bible? And you know it's everywhere, right? This, I'm just sampling it, but it's everywhere. Think of uh, Abraham. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, that story is a perfect example of the instrument of the flesh or the instrument of the spirit. Because in that story, Abraham is promised a child by God. You're going to have a son. And what does Abraham do? He says, okay, God promised that I'm going to have a son, but Sarah and I are too old to have kids. It cannot humanly happen, right? So what is he looking, what perspective is he looking from? flesh, right? So he's thinking, we don't have the power to have a ch child. It's just not possible. So what are we going to have to do? We're going to have to do something that is possible. The only possible alternative here is to go to Hagar. That's it. That's all we can do. What he did was a fleshly move. That was fleshly wisdom and him trusting in what was only possible with man. And of course, that turned out pretty bad, didn't it? But God then came later and says, no, going to happen through Sarah. And it was when Abraham believed. I mean, it says that Abraham believed in chapter four, despite the fact that he was barren and Sarah was barren. He believed God in what God could do, in the power of God. He trusted God's promise and said, okay, God, it's not humanly possible, but I'm gonna trust that your arm can do it. And that's why Paul says in Galatians 4 that there was one Ishmael who was born according to the flesh and there was one Isaac who was born according to the spirit. That is, Ishmael was born according to the arm of the flesh and what humans can do, and, Ish and Isaac was born according to what God could do in his power and his strength. And as I mentioned, Joshua and Caleb, that's another example where the words flesh and spirit aren't used, but that whole story is about flesh and spirit. The rest of the spy says we can't do it. They're too big. They got good weapons, strong cities. They're really tall. We're wimpy, small, no weapons. We, we can't do it. And what does Joshua and Caleb say? They say, yes, we can. God is with us. Yes, I know we can't humanly, it's not humanly possible. Our arm isn't strong. I'm not telling you to rest in our arm. I'm telling you to rest in him. Boy, was God mad when they didn't believe in him, right? Because they didn't trust in him, but in themselves. They did, brothers and sisters, what is perfectly normal for most, for people to do. They assized the situation, right? That's what we're up against. This is what we've got. Can't happen. Most people in the world wouldn't fault them, right? It wasn't their fault. That was just the situation. They were smart. But it was evil because God had told them to go in and promised that he would be with them. 
and they didn't believe in his strength, right? Same with David and Goliath. All of Israel looks at Goliath and says, yikes, this guy's too big. We can't beat him. David doesn't say, I can beat him. I'm, I'm strong, right? David doesn't say that. David says, I can beat him because God is with me. God can take him out, right? He's not trusting in his own strength. He didn't say, I come against you with a sling, you know? He says, I come against you with God in the name of God. He was going to take you out, Goliath. That was a perfect example of something humanly impossible taking place through the power of God. That's what you should, when you read the story of David and Goliath, you should see this is a story of flesh and spirit. And since it's a story in flesh and spirit, this is a story that reflects upon my salvation in Christ. And it's not just some cute story in the Old Testament that's exciting, Right? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Of course, Zechariah 4.6, that's, that's referring to not by our might and not by our power, but by God's spirit, his strength, his power. This is an Old Testament theme. We can even find it in the intertestamental period of Jewish writings that aren't canonical. In uh, one of the scrolls that were found in the Dead Sea, at the Dead Sea, we find this statement. What is flesh compared to God's power? What creatures of clay can do wonders? You see? You see the theme there? Now, I want to ask you for a moment. The Apostle Paul was knowledgeable about the Old Testament. He knew all these stories, right? He saw from, I could give you a million different examples of the flesh and spirit contrast, trusting in man, trusting in God. It's everywhere. And don't you think Paul, reflecting on all of those stories, would have thought, man, this theme fits perfectly with the gospel of Christ. Trusting in what you can do versus trusting in what God can do. Trusting in God's power in the face of a humanly impossible situation. Man, that sounds exactly like the gospel. And it is. The, that is the theme of the gospel. And that's what Paul's saying in Galatians 3. You guys started by faith. And that was your beginning by the Spirit. And now you're going back to the law. That's going back to the flesh. Meaning, you started by saying, it's not what I do because there's nothing I can do to save myself. I'm going to trust in God's promises and what He can do. His arm and His power which is Christ, right? Christ. And so when we put our trust in Christ for our salvation, we're trusting in God's power as the Bible says. The gospel of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Christ crucified is the power of God unto salvation. And we're putting our trust in what God is able to do and not in what we are able to do, amen? And so of course, Paul would connect that theme with the gospel. And we see that he does. Romans 4.1. What shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? Well, if Abraham were justified by works, he could glory, but not before God. Romans chapter 7 is all about the weakness of the flesh to fulfill the law, isn't it? What the flesh couldn't do, God did in sending his son. Remember this? Romans 7 is all about, we don't have the power to keep the law because of the, our, the weakness of our flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27-31, God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise and the base things and the things that are nothing 
This sounds like David and Goliath and Gideon and all those things, but he's applying it to the cross now and to Christianity and to gospel. He's chosen the weak things of the world to confound the wise, to bring to nothing the wisdom of this world so that no flesh may glory in his presence. Right? The gospel of Christ and righteousness through faith is so that no flesh, no human arm and power can glory in God's presence. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 18, Paul is frustrated by the fact that everyone is glorying in the flesh. And he's like, you guys want to glory in the flesh? Okay, I'll glory in the flesh too, although it's stupid. And then he lists all the awesome things that he's done, right? And then finally he says, I don't want to glory in my flesh. I want to glory in my weakness so that the power of God can be magnified, right? So he talks about the flesh there. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 and 9, Paul says that we Christians, all of us, can be summarized and described this way. We are those who boast in the Spirit of God and have no confidence in what? You remember? No confidence in the flesh. That's what a Christian is, by the way. No confidence in the flesh. And then he says, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, I could have more confidence in the flesh. And what does he go on to list? His sinful nature and his sinful desires? No. He goes on to list all of his righteousnesses and his, what he is and his strengths and his abilities and accomplishments, right? So he says, we don't put our confidence in the flesh and I count it all as dung and nothing and worthless so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ. The flesh cannot be the sinful nature, but it refers to our power, our efforts, our abilities, our accomplishments. And when we're trusting in those things, we are having a fleshly mind and we're basing, we're, we're hoping in fleshly wisdom. The spirit, in contrast, is God's power, his arm, his ability, his accomplishments, his work. And when we're trusting in what God does and what God has worked, we are, we are trusting in the spirit. And it is by the spirit that we are saved. I could quote here, W.P. Dixon, who, get, who um, wrote a scholarly study on St. Paul's use of the terms flesh and spirit. Well, I'll read it. He says, We have seen that there is no adequate exegetical ground for the distinctive positions which these writers have laid down as to Sark's flesh, carrying everywhere a fundamental reference to the matter of the earthly body or implying a necessary element of sin. In this study, he says, We've seen that the word flesh doesn't necessarily... It doesn't imply an element of sin. We have traced, on the other hand, regarding the spirit, its paramount place in the Pauline system as the divine power. And that is what Galatians 3.3 is all about. Did you receive the spirit and were justified by the works of the law or by hearing with faith, by hearing the gospel and the promises of God and believing? Are you so foolish? You started in the Spirit or by the Spirit. Are you now finishing by the flesh? The law is all about our work, isn't it? It points to us. It's not about who we're believing in. It's all about what we're doing. We're going to see that as we go on in the book of Galatians. It's all about what we're doing and what is required of us. The law is testing us to see whether we are able or whether we are not able. And the law shows us that no one 
will be justified through it because we are all unable to obey the law. And God's grace is all about God's work. Have you ever noticed that in the book of Isaiah, the death of Christ is referred to as the arm of the Lord? In Isaiah 53, verse 1, that famous chapter of the death of Christ where Christ takes our sins upon himself because all of us like sheep have gone astray. And it starts like this, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the, has the arm of the Lord been revealed? When we trust in God, we are saved because we are weak, but he is strong. And brothers and sisters, we must trust in God to be saved because we are helpless to save ourselves. Jesus made it perfectly clear that in order to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be righteous. And Jesus made it perfectly clear that righteousness was perfect love. He taught that. Unless your righteousness is better than the scribes and the Pharisees, you won't make it. You have to be as perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect in your love. You have to be righteous in order to make it. If that wasn't required, we wouldn't need the death of Christ. We wouldn't need salvation through God's work. We ourselves could have just worked our way to heaven. Because we are without strength, God sent his son to die for us and revealed his love for his enemies and for sinners. We are weak, but he is strong. This is what Christianity is all about, isn't it? Is that what Christianity is about for you? Is that what it's all about for you too? Realizing that you're unable and he's able? Realizing it's not through your own works and efforts which are going to fa- which fail? and realizing that it's through Christ, right? And let's look finally here at verse 6 of Galatians chapter 3. Just close here this morning. Was Abraham justified by works or by believing in what God had promised that he would do? In verse 6, Paul compares our salvation with Abraham's and says, Abraham himself believed in God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham was a spiritual man and not a fleshly man. Not because he didn't have that moment of flesh with Hagar, but because he ultimately believed in the impossible, in the God who can do the impossible, and he was righteous. Paul is saying that our situation is the same. So in closing... In conclusion, we can see here that our salvation is by God's power, not our own. And if we depart from that, and if we leave off the simple hearing of faith and go to the works of the law or put our hope or our trust in anything of the flesh, we lose it all, just like the Israelites lost it all at the border of Canaan. Just like the Pharisees lost it all when they refused to believe in Jesus. And just like Paul says here in verse 4, that everything will be in vain if you leave the Spirit and the way of the Spirit and you go to the way of the flesh. If you leave simple faith alone in Christ for your salvation and you go to the works of the law, everything will be in vain. If you trust in something other than God, it will all come to nothing. But I want to encourage us this morning that if you are trusting in Christ and your hope is solely in him and what he has promised and done for you, then it will all not be in vain. God will come through and you will find that none of 
the things that we've suffered and been persecuted of and none of the trials we've faced in this life because of our faith and our stand for grace will come to nothing. And the earnest of our inheritance, the joy and the hope and the peace that we have through knowing God's grace will come to its fullness. So let's rejoice, brothers and sisters, that we receive the Spirit by the Spirit and not by the flesh and by our own efforts. Isn't that something to be glad about? Are you glad it's not by the flesh that this all comes and salvation comes? Let's rejoice that we receive the Spirit by the Spirit by believing in God. And to God alone be all the glory for His unspeakable gift to us because God alone does all the work.